The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. One problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And good afternoon. Welcome back to another edition of the Work-Life Balance. We welcome everyone to listening to our show. We're so excited to have everyone back. And again, the numbers continue to grow. We're so excited about the growth of the show, the growth of the audience, the feedback that we're getting online I couldn't be more excited to have you guys, and we have such an exciting show today. I cannot wait to announce our guest, but I am going to make you wait just for a second just to tease that out a little bit further. Uh, Was in uh, New Jersey this week. I saw a lot of you there uh, this week at the speaking engagements that we had there. Uh, Next week, going to be in Fort Wayne, Indiana with an event there with a great PM. Uh, I've got a great speaking event coming up on Thursday and Friday doing a seminar out there. So look forward to seeing uh, some listeners in the audience out there in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, As a roundup of some of the people that we've had on the show, uh, we've got an announcement coming up from the party uh, that's going to be coming up here on the show hopefully soon. Uh, So we've got some exciting announcements with them. And then, of course, our great friends uh, Clifton and and Dee Dee Hall, Uh, are going to be in Nashville this week with If Then. So for those of you in Nashville supporting that great Broadway play, you need to go see uh, Dee Dee and Clifton while you can because that tour is starting to to wind up and we need to support them as much as we can. Uh, But this week on the Work-Life Balance, we've got a really, really exciting guest. Uh, We talked uh, last week uh, about uh, me being on the USS Intrepid and how much uh, that meant to me seeing the space shuttle and tying that all in uh, to... uh, uh, to uh, group think and, and coming back to the space shuttle and all of that kind of stuff. But uh, I was really, really impressed with the young man that I, that I got to hear speak there and, and uh, gave a great speech uh, about millennials. And we're going to discuss a little bit about that, but also ties into one of my favorite shows on television uh, and something that I aspire to be as, as we continue to move up the career ladder. One of my you know, greatest aspirations is to be able to enable other people's dreams uh, by investing in their small businesses. And, and so uh, I watch Shark Tank, study Shark Tank, love Shark Tank. And uh, this gentleman here is actually an entrepreneur, a keynote speaker, a best-selling author of the Shark Tank Jumpstart Your Business and Shark Tank Secrets to Success, which just released. And those are the official business books uh, from ABC's hit reality show, uh, Shark Tank itself. It's ranked as one of the top three most popular business authors by Amazon.com. He's named one of the nation's leading millennial voices, and you'll see why when we bring him on. Um, he's a recognized industry expert and television commentator who's regularly featured across numerous media outlets, including CNN, Fox News, CNBC, Fox Business News, Bloomberg, TV, NBC News, and many more. And so without further ado, I'd love to bring him on. Let's welcome Michael Parrish Dudell onto the show. Michael, how you doing, partner? Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me. And again, we were on the Intrepid together, and uh, you yeah, did we a were. speech. Uh, yeah, and, and what I loved about you, and, and so we have kind of similar styles, but you, you, you did a fantastic speech, and, and you were like, well, here's my data. Y'all come at me. 
Go ahead. <laughs> I, I love a good debate. And I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. So let's first start talking about the success of the books. You know, we had uh, Paul Pedrazzi on the show, and and uh, Paul has uh, Ubo. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with every single entrepreneur now. Uh, but uh, he has Ubo, fantastic uh, company. But he also uh, is redesigning and, and really taking into a new direction uh, the interface of CAPPM, which CA is one of our uh, primary sponsors. Uh, but just love the way he, he thinks and love that kind of stuff. And so tell us, how, how did you get into this? How did you get connected with Shark Tank? And, and tell us a little bit about the book and, and, and all of that for us. Yeah, sure. So I've been working sort of in this small business future of work space for a while, probably since about 2008, 2009, uh, in a lot of different ways. I've been consulting with a bunch of big companies like American Express and working with them on some products geared towards millennials, doing a lot of speaking, a lot of workshops and training. And all of that led to working with Seth Godin in 2000 and gosh, I guess that was 2011 on the Domino Project. Um, and that was a company, a publishing company, in fact, that he started, which was powered by Amazon.com. That led to working with GE on the relaunch of ecoimagination.com, which was their digital property they, that they relaunched in, um, I think it was 2012. And, and that led to me starting my own company, which I, I started. It was primarily consulting, like I said, trainings, workshops, that sort of thing, all around millennials, what's next in the workplace, both from a cultural perspective, but also from a consumer standpoint. What is the next generation of consumer actually looking for? And through all of that, I know it's sort of a long buildup, but through all of that, um, Seth and I actually share a literary agent. And one day, quite out of the blue, I got a call from her, and she said, this is going to sound sort of strange, but I got, a, uh, I got a call from Hyperion, who was the publisher at that point, and they said, look, we are, we're looking for an up-and-coming author, entrepreneur, to write the official business book for the show. Do you want to do it? And there was a caveat. The caveat was that I had to write the entire book. And this is the first book. I had to write the entire book in 30 days. Wow. If anyone out there, yeah, it's, that's a crazy deadline. If anyone out there is a writer or has written a book, you know the, the stress of, of 60,000 words in 30 days. Um, and it was very much, you know, I think it's a good metaphor for the show. You're put under intense pressure. You have to perform. And if you do, there's a great reward at the end. And I was so lucky that, that the book did well and that ABC and Disney and Shark Tank brand were, were really excited with it and asked me to do a second one, which was just released about, gosh, five weeks ago. That's fantastic. Yeah, so I have three on the market. I think I had six months to do my first one and a year to do my second. So I couldn't imagine 30 days in, in, in the pressure that that comes with it. It's so how exciting. Yeah. And so who so obviously with the Shark Tank, did they have to approve it? Did they have to go through that, uh, the, the entrepreneurs themselves? Yeah, well, the way it worked was that when we started the project, this is the first book, when we started the project, uh, what they were looking to do, they wanted to find a way to create a business book that was really approachable, that had a, um, just a really simple message that people who watch the show every week and who are inspired to start their own companies could go to the bookstore, check out, read, and, and basically understand the, the, the basics of business, so 101, if you will. And so that was the idea. And instead of like a, a typical business book where you might use you know, uh, a lot of different kinds of case studies and information, I used all of the Shark Tank companies and the knowledge from the sharks in order to tell the story of how to start a business. The second book, we sort of picked up where that one left off, and we talked more about sort of the actual practice of some of these things instead of just the, the tips and the how-to. And I followed nine of some of the most successful entrepreneurs from the show around the country and, and detailed their story, their rise from some of them from childhood all the way through where they are today 
and how they built their businesses, all the struggles, the failures, the successes that came along with it, and, uh, and ultimately how they got on the show. That's fantastic. I think one of the things that we highlight, and I've, I've had several entrepreneurs on the show, and we, we tend to make sure that we highlight often that there are a lot of failures, right? And, and not to be afraid of that failure. And I think that that's a, a, a trend of a successful entrepreneur is to try. And sometimes you're going to fail. But the more you try, the more success that that, that can bring. That's right. And it's not sometimes you're going to fail. It's you're 100% definitely, no doubt about it, going to fail. And the question is, when you do fail, how are you going to handle that failure? You know, a lot of people think that it's about uh, how quickly you can get back on the horse. And I think that is a piece of it. You do need to be able to get back on in some relatively reasonable time span. But it's also about your attitude when you get back on the horse. How do you interpret the failure? Because if you look at it as the be-all, end-all, The next thing you do is just not going to be that great. So you really have to be able to get yourself in the right mind frame in order to look at failure as a building block and not as an ultimate stumble. Yeah, so we shared this last week, actually. People say, you know, I've got three successful companies as we speak. And they go, it's very successful. I say, yeah, but you didn't see the 25 that failed. (laughs) You didn't see all those wonderful times. And and my wife just looking at me going, really? We're going again? (laughs) And you go, absolutely. Let's roll up the sleeves and rock. Let's go. And that's the one thing that every successful entrepreneur or, you know, not even entrepreneur, successful person has in common is that they have a lot of war stories. They have a lot of stories of failure because the, the fact is if you're, if you're failing a lot, you're trying a lot. And if you're trying a lot, you're ultimately going to get it right at some point. And when you do, hopefully it's that big win. And so what's impressive to me is, is that you're at this stage already in, in, you know, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit as the show goes, but, you know, I'm that forgotten generation. So I, I, I look to you and already start looking up to you as to where you are in your stage in your career at the age that you're at, right? Already owning your own consulting business, already owning that kind of stuff. And look, a lot of people look at consultants that you have to have a lot of that years of experience. How have you been able to advance that gap so quickly? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, what was happening in the world in 2007 was really working in my favor. And that was the emergence of media, right? So digital media, pretty much everything digital. And so while in other industries, you might have had to have 20 years experience to be a consultant and to be someone that could go into a company, big or small, and and sort of express your expertise, because of what was happening culturally, Uh, There wasn't really people who were around before, let's call it 2005, 2006. So if you started in 2007 and you really understood the media landscape and how it grew with digital, you became someone that these companies wanted to talk with. And so while at the beginning the company was primarily consulting in the media space, um, sort of about how to have a better, smarter conversation with the consumer, that has changed a lot over the course of the last you know, year or two. And now I would say the majority of the business is less consulting and more actual training, more actual tangible stuff, uh, keynote speaking, webinars, in-person trainings that people can use to, to start changing their organization today and next year. And I think that's what we're going to delve into. We're about to take a break here, but when we come back, I want to start delving into what we're talking about when we say it's changing, right? I, I think some of those statistics that I heard when I heard you speak on the Intrepid there what was eye-opening, especially around where we think that workforce is going to be in the year 2025 um, and really starting to hold on to some of that workforce and what we think that workforce is going to demand. So if you want to hear the answers to those questions, please hang on. We're talking to Michael Parrish Dudell, who is extremely accomplished and absolutely knows what he's talking about. You're listening to The Work Life Balance with Rick Morris. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Today, every business is in the software business. And business is booming. That's because we live in an application-driven world where the lines between physical and digital are blurrier every day. It's a world where billions of connected things talk to each other. Where agility is the new driver of competitive advantage. Where applications aren't just part of your brand. They are your brand. All of this means you have a new mandate. Build the apps that will drive the future of your business and satisfy demanding customers, or fall behind. Only CA Technologies has the years of expertise and the end-to-end portfolio of software solutions to help you plan, build, manage, secure, and scale the applications at the heart of your modern enterprise. To learn how your business can thrive, visit rewrite.ca.com, your exclusive source for insights from the cutting edge of the application economy. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And welcome back to another Friday edition of the Work-Life Balance. We're with Michael Parrish Dudel. Best-selling author of Shark Tank Jumpstart Your Business and Shark Tank Secrets to Success. You can buy both of those on Amazon.com. You also can go to mpdhq.com and uh, also find him at NotoriousMPD on Twitter. Please reach out to him. He's fantastic to follow, fantastic to read. Uh, and to connect with, and and as I found very quickly, he's also very engaging and, and quick to engage with you offline, um, uh, outside of these shows. So please uh, engage with him. So we were talking uh, right before the break about some of these changes uh, that we see in the marketplace. And one of the things I alluded to is is one of these statistics that you shared with Michael about uh, the workforce and, and what that's going to look like in 2025. Can you uh, educate the audience a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, we were talking over break about how some people get really offended when you talk about change, especially change in industries, change in the workplace. And in fact, what is happening is massive change across the board. 
And that's really because millennials, young people, let's call it between the age of, I don't know, 19 and 34 roughly, they are becoming not only part of the workforce, but they're beginning to lead the workforce. They're becoming leaders at their companies, they're becoming leaders in industries, and they're expecting and demanding different things. And now normally you would look at a 23, 24, 25-year-old and say, oh, well, they're just going to have to conform to what's happening at the organization. But in fact, that's not happening so much. And the reason why is because the size of this generation, 80 million members strong, the largest generation in the history of the world, and by 2020 will be half of the workforce, by 2025 will be the majority of the workforce. So companies, large and small, are starting to rethink how they do everything from culture to marketing to general work-life stuff that we're talking about on the show. And, and, and change is inevitable. And, 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 I mean, if you even just look at the Fortune 100 from 15 years ago to 10 years ago to five years ago to today, it, it's tremendous the change that we're seeing. And more than that, change isn't just inevitable. Change is actually good. And it's hard for people to wrap their mind around, especially those folks that feel like they've earned their positions, that they maybe have climbed the corporate ladder, and now just when they're getting to the top, they have to compromise. I spend a lot of time talking about millennials to older people, and I know that I offend some people when I do it. I know that not everyone is, is happy to hear my message, but I bring a lot of good data, and I'm, I hopefully I can convince them that you know these changes that they can make, it's going to make the organization better not just for one group of people, but for the entire company and ultimately their consumer. Well, here's what I really liked about your speech and what touched me. And, and, and so I'm, you know, I'm 42 years old or 43, about to turn 44. And, and so again, I'm Gen X, right? I'm, I, I just missed, you know, I'm not baby boomer and I'm certainly not millennial, right? I'm just on the outside. Yeah. But what I was, was always the youngest executive in the room. I was, I was the earliest manager at, at 17. I was the earliest manager ever hired by a major chain to be, you know, to be a regional manager of a major chain of a restaurant. I was, you know, I was doing project turnaround specialists at Xerox, you know, before I was, you know, 23 years old. And so I was always entrusted with all of this stuff. And I was always the youngest guy in the room. And I'm just now getting to the point where I'm recognizing I'm not the youngest guy in the room anymore. Right, and, and, I know the and, feeling. I'm I'm right? 33, but I still feel like that sometimes. Trust me. Right, right. So you and you've had that rapid rise, and I did too. And I also had the really rapid rise of the maturity mistakes, is what I call it. Right. So I always had the the right answers. I always had a lot of that stuff, but I always had the lack of maturity to recognize when not to roll those out and when, when to let other people get the rewards and and when not, if that makes sense. And and. And so I learned a lot of harder lessons because of that. And, uh, and so now sitting back and starting to see the, the rise of this younger generation, I'm embracing it a little bit more. But, it, 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 you know, it's interesting to, to find myself in that more consultative role and, and seeing my role change from not being that youngest person in the room and fighting that battle to being the guy that they're fighting in a way. It's a really yeah, interesting that, change. And that's one of the challenges is that I think a lot of folks look at it as a fight, as a war between what was and what is. And what I try to convince both sides uh, of is that it's not a war. In fact, you can take the very best of what's worked for organizations for the last hundred years, what it, what it means to be a good communicator, what it means to be a good leader, a good manager. There are, there are really important parts that we shouldn't lose. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. But we can also combine it with some of the values, some of the principles of a, of a newer generation and create a business that makes more sense in 2016. So, for example, if you just look at, at my industry and the project management industry, 
forever we've been wrapped around status reporting. And that means these long, drawn-out status reports that are due every week. Those are driven by emails, long one-hour meetings, and two-page reports. And I've adapted that to Twitter, right? You know, I want 140 characters. I want it done at the end of the week. And I have ADD, so I'm not going to read the two-page report anyway. So those types of adaptations, I think, are a great blending of the two, the way the two generations think anyway. Yeah, I mean, we're starting to look at, at how communication is done throughout an organization, and I think that's an important piece that we need to focus on, is that, you know, to be a good communicator, yes, there are some, some you know, long-standing, tried-and-true things that you can't lose, but the tools in which we use to communicate and our, our acceptance of what it means to be a good communicator, especially when it comes to length and formality, that's changing, and it makes sense to change, because just like you said, you don't have time to read all that stuff. Nobody wants to spend, you know, three or four hours hours putting together a report that somebody's going to ignore. And so if we can adopt in real time with the technology that's available and create something that makes a little bit more sense for everyone, it just seems like that would be the smart way to go for an organization. So what are some of your favorite emerging trends that you're seeing right now in this millennials group? Some of the things that are kind of exciting you the most as you're seeing in this research? I'll tell you the one thing that is exciting me the most, and again, it is, it is being bred with the millennial generation, but I see it across the board, and it is this. The way that we are thinking about work is changing. It used to be that when someone would think about career, they would think of it as a static line, as something linear. You major in something in school, you start at the bottom, you work your way up, you stay in the same role, at the same job, at the same industry, and that's your life, that's your trajectory. And I think what's, what's happening now and what we're seeing now is that people are looking at work differently. It's no longer static. It's no longer linear. It's project-based. It's project begets project. The more you learn, the more you evolve, the more you change. And we live in a world now that allows us to have 10 different careers over our lifetime and, and really develop sort of these fluid skills, these soft skills that make us marketable in a lot of new ways. And so that is the thing I like, I think, the most about the generation is that they're embracing this idea that doing good work, that doing important work is, is a fluid process and something that evolves with a person, not in contrast to that person. So I think you just said something there that, that, that hits a nerve with me because it's very in contrast with what's still happening in our, in our industry and in companies, right? So you said doing good work, doing important work, and, and that leads to also something else that, that you say is very important to millennials, and I think it's very important to everybody is being valued. And, and understanding that you know this task that I'm doing on this project that I'm doing, I've got to see how does that fit into the overall strategy of the organization? How do I know what I'm doing is important? Right? It's not just, you know, I'm coming in, clocking in, clocking out, going home. I need to know that I'm doing something that matters. And yet a study just came out it was four weeks ago that said 78% of the project managers and the people on a project team have no idea how their project even affects the organization. That's something that, that rapidly needs to change. Absolutely. And I would, I would take the word important and I would change it for maybe another word, a synonym of that, which would be impact. Impact matters, especially to millennials, but to everyone. And this is the fight that I find myself fighting a lot is trying to convince people that some of these basic changes that they can make to make the company better for millennials and better positioned to talk to millennials are things that every generation would appreciate. Who wouldn't appreciate having a little bit more impact at their job? Who wouldn't appreciate a little bit more communication and a little bit less of this sort of 
I would say, backwards professional attitudes where you don't actually feel like you have that humanity in the organization. I think if we bring that humanity back to a company, we're going to have a much better conversation for everyone, not just the millennials. And I agree. And coming back to one of my mentors and, and, and somebody that, that I associate with is John Maxwell. And, and it's amazing how his leadership lessons can transcend time. And one of my yeah. favorite quotes that he says is, is, you know, success doesn't bring happiness. Significance brings happiness. And so doing the job that makes you feel significant and, to your point, impactful, really is what makes people get up out of, out of bed, ready to go to work, man. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and the truth is, is that a lot of those evergreen leadership principles will always be relevant, maintain their relevancy. And I'm always trying to convince people that, you know, you don't have to throw everything out. You don't have to start from scratch. That doesn't make any sense. It's just about adopting some of, this, some of these newer things and this new mentality. And I think that the, the best leaders, the best managers, understand that the key to maintaining their strength, to maintaining their, their market share and their mind share is being able to adapt and real time. That's what makes us better. That's what makes us stronger. And frankly, that is what makes us more competitive. And, and competition is, is getting so fierce for, for the best people, right? And, and that's what I'm seeing in these organizations is as you continue to use these old practices, you know, people don't have the patience to wait it out anymore, nor should they. Right. It's, you know, gone are the days that that say, you know, I'm going to sit here for three, four years and find out what's going to happen. I mean, the employment contract now is I'm going to invest in you. You're going to invest in me and we're going to see if this is mutually beneficial. But and this this is a trial on both sides. That that 90 day period is both sides, not just, you know, whether or not you're going to be a good employee. It's also whether or not you're going to be a good employer. Yeah, and, and, and the thing about loyalty is this. Look, this is a generation that we saw our parents spend their life dedicated to a company, being loyal to a company, and then getting laid off, losing their severance, losing their retirement. We, we, we grew up in this era where this stuff was happening. It was great, and then things went downhill. And so nobody should be surprised that from our side, loyalty, we didn't see companies being necessarily loyal to the older people in our lives, so we don't feel as though we need to have that loyalty to them. No, and, and, and again, loyalty works both ways. I mean, I, I was exactly. almost laid off at an organization because it was going to be too expensive to pay my bonus. So they were going to keep the guy who wasn't overachieving because it was cheaper. I mean, come on. Yeah. I no, mean, I, I, and listen, every, like I said, every generation has experienced this in their own way. And so it, it makes sense for an organization to understand that the employee they're getting, they shouldn't expect by default a lifetime of loyalty because they need to they need to work for that they need to prove that they're worthy of being loyal too and good organizations understand that and good organizations can prove that yeah you see it all the time especially like in banking or or you know that kind of stuff that you get that three percent raise every year but then that person who quits and comes back after six months got the 19 percent raise and you're like oh right so that's how that's how i increase the salary i'll just quit and come back <laughs> right right <laughs> Those are the practices. Listen, we're having a great time with Michael Parrish Dudell. Again, while we're on break, go to mpdhq.com. Check out his website, or you can hit him up on Twitter at, at NotoriousMPH, or go to Amazon.com and go ahead and buy a copy of Shark Tank Jumpstart Your Business or Shark Tank Secrets to Success. Uh, while we're on break, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Work Life Balance with Rick Morris.
Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. This is not a radio ad. It's a collection of computers, servers, transmitters, satellites, and receivers, all powered by the most transformative force in business today, software. Just think about how many applications you have within reach at this very moment, and not just on your phone. If you're in your car, software is powering the GPS that guides you. Turn left ahead. The digital road signs that direct you onward, and the engine computer that keeps you moving. Soon, software will even replace you as the driver. Switching to auto drive mode. This is life in the application economy, and the opportunities for businesses are endless. But only if you have the tools to seize them. From planning to development to management to security, end-to-end software solutions from CA Technologies can help your business succeed in this new application-driven world. Learn now at rewrite.ca.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we thank you for hanging on to another episode here of the Work-Life Balance. As always, uh, you can hit me up on Twitter. It's at Rick A. Morris or send me an email. It's rmorris at rsquared. And that's with a D, rsquaredconsulting.com. Uh, we're visiting with Michael Parrish Dudell. We've been talking about millennials, his books, Shark Tank Jumpstart Your Business and Shark Tank Secrets of Success. Uh, we were just uh, visiting uh, about how companies and companies need to change and, and some different attitudes. And one of the things that when we start talking about attitudes and attitudes of millennials, there's a lot of generalizations that are made um, uh, about the millennial generation, a lot of misconceptions that are out there as well. And uh, one of the big things is, you know, we get into the kind of why, you know, people have those misconceptions, maybe even why millennials be, behave the way that they do. Michael, uh, why why do did this generation kind of grow to, to the generation that they are? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because, you know, we can look at who they are right now in the year 2016, 
But what we have to understand is that, you know, we're still very much in our infancy. Because of access to data, this generation has been studied far more than, than any other generation while they're in their, you know, their early stages. If you look at baby boomers when they were, you know, 25, 26, and you make grand assumptions about them, and then you compare that to who they actually grew into, you would be wrong. And so I think it's important to understand you got it right exactly when you said we're generalizing 80 million people, which is what you do when you look at a generation, um, but also that we're going we're gonna to change a lot. And so you know, my sort of philosophy is that if you understand why we are the way that we are instead of just you know, what you need to do right now to, to succeed with us, then you're going to understand us in a better way and in a more long-term way. So, so to, your, to your point, the, the, the why, why are we the way we are, it's really three things that happen, right? So if you look at when we grew up, which for the most of us were, you know, early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, depending on how old you are, there were three really big important things happening. One was the rise of technology. Two was this crazy economy. I mean, if you look at what was happening in the economy in 1995, it stayed pretty much the same from, let's call it 72 to 95. There were some ups, there were some downs. But for the most part, it was, you know, relatively static. And then you hit 95 where there's this huge boom, inflation. I mean, all this stuff is down. Employment's up. Uh, there's just a ton of disposable income. People are doing really well. And then the crash, of course. So you see this shift in the economy, this, this rise in this adaption of technology and also, the third piece of it is, is the way that we parented. So the rise of the helicopter parent happened in this generation. We've never seen parenting like it was done to, to my people, to, to my generation. And the way we were raised uh, affected who we became as adults naturally and who we became as employees and as consumers. So the first piece I'd li- I like to touch on that is the, the technology. One of the things I always share with my kids, you know, so, you know, the, the technology change started to happen you know, in Gen X, right? So the, there wasn't really much technology, but the, the rise of the home PC started coming in. So I was Commodore 64 and VIC-20, you know, you know we, we just started getting on bulletin board systems, pre-internet, that kind of stuff. So we were pretty tech savvy and uh, nothing like what you guys had. And, you know, obviously not attached to our iPhones and text and everything else, but we were pretty tech savvy. But the thing I always comment on is I, I'm fascinated by technology and I can't wait to, to find out what it is that... Uh, I, as a grandparent, am not going to be able to figure out, and I'm going to have to call <laughs> my grandchild to help me program. Well, you know, so so for my parents, it was the VCR, and so my kids are now helping. You know, my uh, my parents with the iPads and iPods. What is it going to be that my grandchildren are going to have to help me with that I can't understand? That's what I'm your excited virtual to find reality out. device. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be your virtual <laughs> or whatever succeeds virtual reality. You know, what's funny is that I, I spend a lot of time talking about millennials, and I am a millennial uh, by my age, but I think in my soul I'm I'm probably closer to like sixty or sixty-five. I'm an old soul, so I need help programming. You know, my Snapchat for God. I don't even have Snapchat, so that that says something. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that's one thing about how technology's evolved. I'm excited to find out what that is, right? So something like that's going it, to, it, it's going to pass me by. I'm still pretty tech savvy. I can Snapchat. I, hey, look, I can Snapchat. But, you know, it's going to pass me by. And, and I'm excited to look forward to that point, to, to when it passes me by, what is it that I'm not going to be able to use? So that's one piece. Now, the helicopter yeah, parent. But I would, I would suspect even more important than what's going to, you know, uh, going to confuse you when you get older. It's about what you were raised with in those really important developmental years. So when you look at the younger generation, you look at millennials. You know, by 1991, almost every U.S. school district had computers. I have this one memory. I, I, I wish I would have written it down at the time if I knew how important it would be. But 
too young to do that. I was in first grade, and as I was walking into the school library for the very first time, I'm walking in the door, the card catalog is being carried out. And if that is not a metaphor for what was happening in the world, what was happening in our culture, I don't know what was, because I never learned how to use a card catalog. I still don't know how to use a card catalog. I could probably figure it out. But the point is, is that that was being replaced with technology. And that changed the way that we communicate. That changed our access to information, our expectation, and ultimately turned us into the kind of adults that we're growing into. Right. And, and, you know, my son, who's nine, you know, his card catalog is YouTube. Right, right. I mean, that kid, If it, it, the ultimate punishment for me was go to your room. You know, the ultimate punishment for him is two hours with no iPad. Yeah, it's amazing how, I mean, I have a, I have a friend who has a two-year-old, and they can manipulate YouTube better than I can, so that's saying something. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable that not only the access, but the knowledge and, and everything that's there. And, and of course, there's always the, the bad things that, that, that can come from that, but the good that comes from that, too. I mean, for me, you know, we, we just had the passing of Muhammad Ali, and, and I have a fantastic photo of my father with Muhammad Ali, you know, back in the day. But, you know, I wanted to go back and see, you know, some of his greatest quotes and see some of his, you know, his quips and things like that. And it's, you know, you, you can go see that. And, and see it as it happened. You know, it's it's fantastic the access that we have to to history as well. Absolutely. So then you talked about helicopter parenting, which you know, and that yeah. was funny because when we were there, I remember walking out the door and and watching a lady trap you down, going, you know, I take offense to being called a helicopter parent. You know, and it was yeah, funny. You saw, her, you saw her do that, huh? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I watched. I watched that happen. And again, it, it's funny because they do it, but then they take offense to doing it. But then they admit that they do it. And and yeah. and I, now again, I'll share. I'll share something with you as well. I remember at a young age, being ten years old, my parents going overseas, going to Europe, and me being left home with a babysitter. And I I said right then, look, if I ever grow up and I have the opportunity to go overseas then, you know, I'm taking my kids with me. So by the time my daughter was 15, she'd been to Italy like 12 times. And, and she looks at me and going, are we going to Italy again? You know, and I'm like, really? You know what I mean? <laughs> is, is, yeah, is that sure. the attitude? But I mean, they've been to Italy. They've been to Greece, They've been all over the world. And because we could. And, and we had the opportunity to take them. But, you know, it, it's a different generation now and the same thing. But uh, there's... Talk about the helicopter parenting and, and the effect, and, and I even loved your, your quip on, on the trophies. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing is that, you know, we, again, you have to look at the economy first and see there's such a, there's such a boom in the economy in the, in the mid to late 90s that we had a lot of disposable income. And uh, a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me, sociologists and, and professors, have, have sort of coined this term in the economy as this era of irrational exuberance, right, where we had so much. We had access to, to just about anything that we wanted to. And what happened is that, you know, when you have so much, when you, when you have a lot to lose, people start to become afraid that they're going to lose it. And when you have access to media, when you have access to money, and when you have access to all this stuff, um, for the first time, you can tend to overdo it. And that's what happened a little bit with the parents is that they became a little bit too micromanagey, a little bit too obsessed with our satisfaction, our happiness, making sure that every need was sort of taken care of, that it turned us into people that expect a little bit more. And again, I am a huge proponent of my generation. I, I think that we are a great generation. We certainly have our flaws. I don't think that as a people we are necessarily entitled. Of course, there is entitlement in the generation. But to understand 
understand that entitlement, you have to understand how we were raised. If you look at how somebody, you know, who's maybe 50 or 60 was raised and the kind of parenting that they experienced, that dictated who they became later in their life. And, and that's what we're seeing with this generation. So, you know, the first, the first challenge that I always get when I walk into a new group or to a new company you know, the first thing they say is, well, we didn't have these things. We didn't have to, we weren't demanding this kind of stuff. So why should this other generation, they have to work their way up. And I, I'm happy to argue that if you'd like, but it's not, a, it's not a worthy argument because again, it's happened. It is what it is. The better argument to have is how do we go about making meaningful change that makes our lives better, our organization better, and the future of our company, which by the way, our millennials a little bit better. Yeah, and that's a great argument to have, right? That, and that's what we all should be focused on, right? So if we're looking at no day but today, it's not about really what happened yesterday, and we really can't even guarantee tomorrow. What can we do today as an organization, as a group, to improve everybody's lives? That's exactly right. And when I, when I, we were talking about, you know, when I leave a room, half the audience loves me and half the audience hates me. And if that's the case, I feel like I've done my job because that means at least everyone has heard me. But, you know, I very often find myself in situations where after a speech I'm cornered by somebody who didn't like what I said, and they said, listen, I don't like this or I don't agree with this, and I'm always happy to hear their opinion, always happy to debate, um, but I have a lot of data to back it up, so um, <laughs> I'm prepared for the debate is what I'm saying. <laughs> and I hope I'm well, an affable enough guy that people aren't offended by me just by the message sometimes. No, and, and again, you know, I I was I was moved to, to, to bring you onto the show immediately because again, I I found a lot of value in in, in the message as I do again today, um, because I think it's important. So I liken it to this, Michael. It's you know, it's almost like a three sixty degree review. It, look, sometimes I'm going to get information back on that that I'm not going to like, but if I hear it and I hear it properly, then it's going to help me learn and grow and change. And that means, you know, as a parent, you know. I've got two children. I don't have a manual. And so I've, right. I've certainly done a lot of things wrong in the raising of my children. And the only reference point I have is the way I was raised. And so, you know, I'm going to look at the what I liked about my parents, what I didn't like about my parents, and then I'm going to try to change that. And then I have my tendencies in my personality, <laughs> and I'm going to try to fix those. But you know, then what's going to be funny is my kids are then going to turn around and use that as a blueprint and turn around and say, well, here's what I didn't like about my dad, what I did like about my dad, and this right. is what I'm going to change when I raise my kid. But I know they well, sit around school and go, well, I don't like it when my dad does this. <laughs> sure. And, and look, there's very rarely a right or wrong. There's a better choice and a worse choice. There's a there's choice A with one set of consequences and choice B with another set of consequences. But especially, you know, outside of the home, when you're looking at, you know, leading a company, I, I, the line between right and wrong tends to be more blurry than I think people give it credit for. Oh, and it, it becomes so difficult. It becomes sure. so difficult. And you know this, you know, running your own firm, right? What are some yeah. of the tough choices? What are those, yeah, those it, tough choices it, that you have to make? It's, it's difficult, and, and, and they're complicated, and there isn't a how-to. There isn't a five steps to making this hard decision, right? Like, it, it requires a lot of critical thought. It requires a lot of reflection. And, you know, that's something that you, you learn throughout your career. You never stop learning. You never stop improving. When you do, that's when you're out. So I think no matter how old you are, no matter what your role is, the, the key, the secret to, to being really great is to always maintain that sort of student perspective. You're always learning. You're always developing. Well, I think that's a perfect place to take our final break. We're going to come back uh, right after this, and we'll see if Michael shares some of his favorite tips. And we always uh, 
share a final question with our guests too, and I'll give you a little uh, forethought on that. Michael is, you know, what's what's the one thing you want everybody to remember? So we'll uh, hear Michael's uh, thought when he comes back. You're listening to the Work Life Balance with Rick Morris. Today, every business is in the software business. And business is booming. That's because we live in an application-driven world where the lines between physical and digital are blurrier every day. It's a world where billions of connected things talk to each other. Where agility is the new driver of competitive advantage. Where applications aren't just part of your brand. They are your brand. All of this means you have a new mandate. Build the apps that will drive the future of your business and satisfy demanding customers, or fall behind. Only CA Technologies has the years of expertise and the end-to-end portfolio of software solutions to help you plan, build, manage, secure, and scale the applications at the heart of your modern enterprise. To learn how your business can thrive, visit rewrite.ca.com, your exclusive source for insights from the cutting edge of the application economy. This is not a radio ad. It's a collection of computers, servers, transmitters, satellites, and receivers, all powered by the most transformative force in business today, software. Just think about how many applications you have within reach at this very moment. And not just on your phone. If you're in your car, software is powering the GPS that guides you. Turn left ahead. The digital road signs that direct you onward. And the engine computer that keeps you moving. Soon, software will even replace you as the driver. Switching to auto drive mode. This is life in the application economy. And the opportunities for businesses are endless. But only if you have the tools to seize them. From planning to development to management to security, end-to-end software solutions from CA Technologies can help your business succeed in this new application-driven world. Learn how at rewrite.ca.com. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back for the final segment on this Friday afternoon. We've been talking all segment or all day with uh, Michael Paris Dudel. He's an entrepreneur, keynote speaker, and the best-selling author of Shark Tank Jumpstart Your Business and Shark Tank Secrets to Success. I don't know why. You know, that title just doesn't flow for me, Michael. We're going to have to work on that. Every time I think I get hung on secrets there, but that's quite all right. Um, and so coming back, we talked about kind of the, the how and the why um, about the millennials, and it's been fascinating. But let's talk about some of the key tips in engaging, right? Engaging them and, and, and really um, making them a part of that consumer message and, and really how to uh, get them involved. Yeah, you know, one thing I would say right off the bat is, you know, if you're out there and you're listening and maybe you feel like your company or your brand isn't that cool and maybe not sexy like Apple or Google, you know, tr- people try to, to position their company so that it does look cool, even if it isn't. 
and I don't think that's a smart idea. You know, my, one of my top tips is to just be the brand that you are, not the brand that you want to be, not the brand that you think you should be. So a really good example of that is uh, a few years ago, Doritos launched that, you know, talk about a hard name, a Doritos Locos Tacos, right? And what's interesting is that they, I'm sorry, this one's this is Taco Bell. They partnered with Doritos to launch the Doritos Locos Tacos. And what Taco Bell did was they went against what everyone in the industry was doing. Everyone was thinking, okay, we need to make healthy choices. We need to make smarter choices about, you know, farm fresh ingredients, which look, I'm all for, but that's not really at the core of a lot of these fast food brands. And what they did was they positioned themselves that way and they got a lot of negative press because people just weren't buying it. We're savvier consumers now. And so what Taco Bell did was they went the opposite way. Instead, they created, they partnered with Doritos to create a taco made from a Doritos shell, and it did really well. They sold, I believe, a billion dollars in that product. took about a year and a half to do that. It still is one of their most successful product launches ever. I'm not saying that you should you know, release a taco with a, with a Doritos shell, but I am <laughs> saying that you've got to know what your brand is, what your organization does, and really embody that, not the thing that you think you should be doing. That's one of the, the key points that I, that I generally leave audiences with. Yeah, and, and I remember even when you, you, you said, you know, you're, you're really not going to talk politics, but you brought up politics. But, but the theme of what you brought up and when you said that was authenticity. That is exactly right. So, so it's always tough to bring up what's happening in the election in front of anyone because there are a lot of very strong viewpoints on the left and on the right. And I tend to personally be right in the middle on a lot of things. And so I am in, in this election as well, actually. Um, not in candidates, but in, in my opinions on the issues. Um, and, but what I, what I was talking about in the speech is that, you know, the reason why you see a lot of excitement on one side for Trump and on the other side for, for Sanders is because they both sort of represent, whether it's accurate or not, a new authentic voice. People are tired of the same old sort of lackluster machine voice that doesn't feel like it's real, that doesn't feel like it's authentic. And one thing I love about this generation is that you don't have to be perfect, but you do have to be transparent. You do have to be as authentic as possible. And they appreciate those flaws as long as you do it in a more honest way. I think that speaks to the, the, the rise of the, of the empowered consumer, the rise of the savvier uh, consumer. And so coming back to brand messaging, when you see some of, you know, and it's funny how you see people jump on the bandwagon. They're like, oh, we didn't think of that, but now we're going to do that. And then when they do that, they lose that authenticity. But I think it was Oreo that, that first really started kind of that direct tweet um, where uh, somebody would tweet something out and they would respond. Uh, yeah. I'm not, so, you know, they, they first started doing that, then that got some press, and then everybody started to try to do that. Now it seems a little inauthentic. Uh, but finding new ways to engage with that customer in that authentic way it has become really that big trend to to really get your brand out there, but staying authentic to who you are. Absolutely. And, and look, if you're not the sexiest company in the block, you're not the coolest brand, that's okay. You should embrace it. I would say, you know, totally embrace it. Go, go hardcore in accepting the fact that you're not that and figuring out what exactly your competitive advantages are, what's your real value proposition to a new uh, market of consumers. So what about some other tips in, in maybe engaging the, in, in finding that, that millennial balance maybe within the organization itself and in, in, in finding them and attracting them to the workforce for it? 
Yeah, well, you know, if you're looking internally, if you're looking to figure out how to hire, train, retain those kind of like better, more talented employees, another, this is a point of contention, but another thing I talk about is really embracing flexibility. Understanding that the data across the board shows that millennials do not feel as though they need to be at the office every day. Um, and that's something that is, again, pretty new, but a great survey from Cisco found that about 69% of millennials believe daily office attendance is unnecessary. And it's not because they're not interested in working every day. It's just that they recognize that most jobs no longer require you to sit in a cube from 9 to 5 just to be there to be there. In fact, you can get better work done, more meaningful work done in a way that feels better for you and that you're going to put your, your best foot forward if you're able to have a little more flexibility. So I always talk to companies that are, that are interested in, in getting better millennial employees and say, hey, listen, what is your policy about working from home? How often do you allow your employees to do that? Sometimes people say, oh, well, it's a policy that, that we don't let our employees do that. And I always say, well, why is it a policy? And nobody can give me a great answer. They just say it's a policy. And I think that anything that's a policy for a policy's sake is probably not great. Uh, if there's a reason, that's wonderful. Yes, of course, it's important for culture, for folks to know each other. But to have a policy for the sake of having a policy is always dangerous. So I encourage people as often as they can to think about that flexibility in their value proposition as an employer. And with the advent of technology, I mean, you know, so many more applications are SaaS-based, you know, so many more things you can do, do remotely. And quite frankly, all week, you know, this week I was on client sites four straight days and I got more done today than I did those four straight days, right? So off-site, got a lot more done even, you know, for some of those clients. So, um, you know, certainly can see how that that's beneficial and uh, certainly having a couple of days where you can just check out and uh, be able to focus without all the interruptions is, is certainly a positive thing. Yeah, and again, people are resistant to it because it's new and they're resistant to it because they didn't have that when they were, you know, maybe coming up in their organization. But those aren't reasons to resist it. In fact, those are, those are arguably reasons to embrace it. Right, and there's a trust factor that has to go with that. But look, you know, if I don't trust you in the first place, why did I hire you? Yeah, exactly. So leading to our favorite question that we like to ask all of our guests. So as you leave a room, as you leave this show, as you leave, you know, doing one of your keynote speeches, how do you want people to remember you? Not just only your message, but how do you want people to remember you? Yeah, you know, I want people to remember me as somebody who's passionate about what they what they say and what they believe in. You know, I think that there's a lot of talk in, in the in the workplace about the role of passion and, and figuring out what you want to do with your life. And I tend to be on the side that, you know, passion following your passion isn't very good advice, right? You know, f following opportunity and using your passion to make the most of that opportunity, that's good advice. But I think as from a personal standpoint, the people that have passion, I think, are the people that can go the furthest because you care about something. You actually put a little bit of yourself into it and you put yourself on the line, and I think that's really important. And so for me, personally, when somebody leaves the room with me, I hope that they leave with the idea that, you know, I am a passionate person and that I feel very strongly, whether it's about millennials or work or whatever I'm talking about, that I'm talking about it for a reason, and the reason is because I, I care deeply about the subject. Well, I can promise you, I absolutely 100% got that impression of you when you left the room uh, from the Intrepid. I'm happy and, to hear it. And, uh, you know, funny that you use that word because uh, when I sat down and put together the whole marketing strategy of, of my company, you know, the first thing I wanted to do was write a book. And uh, when I went to go write that book, you know, I wanted to, you know, I do what everybody else does. I, I research and go out there and I found a book actually called Putting Your Passion into Print. 
and that was what I used as my template to to write my first book and go get published in, in the whole nine yards. So I, I like the the fact that you even use that term. That's awesome. Well, I'm happy to hear it. Absolutely, sir. Well, again, the, the, the hour has flown by. It, it was extremely entertaining. We certainly appreciate your passion and, and, and the knowledge that you bring to this. And hopefully everyone that was listening learned a tremendous amount uh, about the millennial generation. And, and again, please follow up. Uh, you can go to mpdhq.com and find out a lot more about Michael. Um, again, you can go to amazon.com and get his books. Um, or reach out to him on Twitter is at Notorious uh, MPD. Any other ways to get in touch with you, Michael, or is those, those the those key ways? Those are the best ways. Those are the best ways, yeah. Perfect. And then check out his photos. He's a good-looking guy, too. So uh, we'd love <laughs> to have you, Michael. Uh, we certainly appreciate you spending the time on the work-life balance. Uh, next week, we're going to be coming to you live from Fort Wayne, Indiana. So we're going to have John Stenbeck on the show as well. Uh, we're going to be doing that live from the Project Management Institute chapter there in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, we'll look forward to having everybody back on another edition of the Work-Life Balance. We thank you for joining us as always, and we look forward to having you next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show. 